This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that examines contemporary issues using the principles of the Baha'i Faith. If you want information on the Baha'i Faith specifically, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with Mr. Paul Robbins, a Baha'i from Wilbraham, Massachusetts, who was formerly a political consultant and is now a public relations consultant for both corporate and nonprofit organizations. I started the interview by asking Paul where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, I grew up in the McKnight section of Springfield, which is a racially diverse section of Springfield. And what it was like for me was that I thought everybody lived that way. And... Um, it wasn't until there were quote-unquote race riots in my junior year of high school where I vividly recall not being able to leave the school because riot police had surrounded our building and African-American friends of mine suddenly wouldn't look me in the face. I realized the whole world isn't like McKnight where it's diverse both racially <clears throat> and socioeconomically my dad was a uh, a political reporter, and at the time we were living in that neighborhood, he was a managing editor, eventually became the editor. So we kind of saw the big picture through my dad's eyes, and we lived in this neighborhood that was diverse, and it was the greatest neighborhood to grow up in. Mm. And um, my closest friend, who lives in uh, Virginia now, uh, that's the best part of his life also he left when he was 13 and um you know the lessons we learned there um are applicable to my life every day mm. what year was that which when you had the race riots uh would have been in uh, like 72 mm. 71 72 mm. and people were basically being taken off of school buses and beaten uh, there would be whites who would show up to Tech High School or in classical high school where I went and wait for the bell to ring. So for a couple of years there, people who remember Springfield history, um, they stopped allowing the public, the fans, to go to high school basketball games for three years. Oh, so really? every game, the championship, the semifinals, there were no cheerleaders, no rah-rah. There were, the games were played in silence, basically because the games were another opportunity for trouble to to break out. And back then, the schools were very segregated. Commerce was almost exclusively black. Uh, there was some racial mi mixing at uh, classical, but it was mostly white. Tech was uh, increasingly becoming more minority. So what happened is uh, that's not the case anymore. The schools are much more. But it was uh, kind of a defining moment. Um, for the community. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I had this kind of Pollyanna view of the world growing up in McKnight. So I was a city kid, you know, and 
didn't think anything of all these bigger issues that are playing out in the world. And um, so, you know, my view is that the world eventually become like McKnight neighborhood was when mm. I was a kid. Yeah. That was <clears throat> high school. What happened after? Well, I went to um, my second, uh, you know, realization that this is a, a problem came when I went to UMass. Okay. And more than 50% of the kids that go to UMass are from the greater Boston area. And I recognized then that there's an enormous amount of racial tension in Boston. Because uh, they had, at the same time, they had busing. It was forced. Um, Louise Day Hicks had become a national figure opposing it. There's a famous photograph of a white person taking an American flag, which is on a pole with a point on the end of about to stab an African-American man in a suit in Boston. Famous, famous image. So I confronted um, that at UMass, and I was really, really taken aback that there was so much uh, racial tension and that mm -hmm. people so freely uh, shared their racism and expected that I would just join in because I was white. And I said, hey, guys, this is... This is crazy. What are you talking about? So it's interesting. My best friend who moved to um, the South at the time, he moved to Virginia, um, then on to Memphis. This is my best buddy from – I went to do a campaign for an African-American woman because I was a political consultant for many years. And uh, his older brother, also lived in Memphis, thought I was nuts. He said, uh, the blacks down here are different than they are back home in McKnight. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you can't go into that neighborhood by yourself and work for these people. What's wrong with you? And I thought, wow, from a time, from zero to, he was probably 15 when he left because he's two years older than myself and my friend when they all left. Mm -hmm. What had happened? He had reversed what he had learned in our neighborhood and it really demonstrated to me how, how easy it is to slide into that. The irony is, he said, I, I'm not going to allow you to go there by yourself. So I said, fine, Tom. His guy's name was Tom Hart, my best friend, John Hart. And John was, like, on the fence, like, well, Tom might be right, but Paul, you know, you might be right too. But mm. So Tommy Hart takes me into this black neighborhood to meet this all-black uh, campaign um, staff. And within 10 minutes, he had melted. Mm. He's a carpenter. And I said, it's okay for you to go, Tom. I'm fine. He said, no, no, I'm going to stick around. And within minutes, he was, you know, you need some shelves over there? Yeah, we do, because we have all this stuff, paperwork on the floor. Well, I'll be back, and I'll put the shelves up. And I thought, well, the first 15 years of his life, he thought racial harmony was kind of normal. And another umpteen years, whatever it was, maybe 10, he had kind of unlearned it. And within 10 minutes, he was back to McKnight, so... That's good. Yeah. Any <clears throat> other experiences in UMass that are significant? Well, um, it was you know it was at the point in time I was in UMass in the seventies, and I think what was happening was people were starting to get away from social consciousness. Mm. So I was kind of still stuck in, hey, we should be socially aware, and what's going on? And I think that was the point where UMass started to get this reputation for you know being a party school. So. I was kind of straddling, you know, that Era's. era. And uh, you don't realize you're going through the era until you're already out of it. And I think uh, 
that seems like such ancient history to me now. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, even through all these different changes, we still have these racial issues that are uh, undercurrent in all of our relationships with people. Yeah. And what, what did you study at UMass? I was a political science major. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, I remember going to my advisor in my senior year and say, what can I do with this degree? And he said, gee, I don't know. <laughs> you don't know? Well, I figured something. I became... I, got out of school and I decided I was going to become a political consultant, which had nothing to do with my political science training in UMass. So uh, what was your first entry into <coughs> being a political consultant? Well, I is that the first thing you d- really did after you got out of college? Well, I went to uh, work under a federal program to work for a year as an aide to the Springfield City Council because I wanted to get some real-life political experience. And I'd taken a semester uh, like the University Without Walls type program at UMass to spend a semester working as an aide to the city council. And I kind of liked that. <clears throat> so I did a year there. And then I decided, okay, I'm, I got plenty of experience now. I'm 22 years old. I can just basically open up my business foolishly. Uh, my first real client was uh, Mike Dukakis, who was running for governor. And at the same time, I picked up. And what year was that? That would be 1981. I got out of school in 78, and I worked in this city council job in two different stints for two years. Then I left and said, I'm going to just go conquer the world. This shouldn't be too hard. And, um, of course, it was very hard. And I I was a field coordinator for Mike Dukakis, who was running against the sitting governor, Ed King. Ed Dukakis had alienated all of the... um, political people in the world so that was an education for me and then I uh, also and how did he do that uh, he didn't play politics in his first to his somewhat credit it's a kind of a mixed bag but and a lot of people who were around at the time remember that he didn't quote unquote reward people Uh, patronage yeah and to a fault almost someone could be extremely qualified but if they had worked on his campaign they were they were not allowed to apply so that left some hard feelings and at the same time, I picked up uh, another campaign, uh, Linda Melconian, who was running for state senate. Um, I had zero experience, but I convinced her that I knew exactly what I was doing, and we accidentally won that campaign, so my career was launched. I thought I was fine. I just, Dukakis was governor, and Linda Melconian was elected to senate, so I just thought I would sit back in my apartment and people would call, uh, which, no, of course, no one did. Um, my refrigerator broke in my apartment, so I said, well, that will be temporary. The money will come at any moment. So I uh, moved my food to a cooler on the back porch of my apartment and lived out of a cooler for basically three months because in June, July, it gets very oh, yeah. hot. <laughs> <laughs> so I... Uh, so that was a significant event for you. Yeah, that was pretty eye-opening. And, you know, being in your early 20s, and you just feel you've had contributed to these political campaigns. And uh, I was um, motivated to be in politics because of a sense of idealism, which later uh, forced me out of politics and actually into thinking about my spiritual pathway. Mm. Because what you find is that the si- it's really the system that's broke. You can elect all the nice individuals you want, but the system is 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 corroding. So, but I needed to learn that. So, eventually, I picked up because of winning, and then re- regrouping and realizing I had to promote myself. 
uh, I tended to get candidates that had no shot of winning. I accidentally won a few more, and so everyone thought I knew what I was doing. And actually, you're learning as you're going. Which ones were those? Uh, I did a campaign in Chicopee for a guy who was running for mayor. Nobody knew, including myself. <laughs> we won. Uh I did, and then I eventually, you know, I did Bill Bennett, who was running for DA, and won. Brian Lee's, who became the state, also in the state senate, and it, and the mayor of Holyoke, and it just kept going and going. And then I really started to develop some expertise in it, mm-hmm. and then got to the point that I thought this is there's something uh, demeaning and debilitating about this industry, and started thinking. It was actually politics that brought me into contact with Baha'is, ironically, because mm-hmm. Baha'is don't get involved in mm-hmm. partisan politics. I can imagine a political <clears throat> consultant, it's a very ego-boosting kind of occupation. And even if you lose, you know, there's, there's this energy involved in the campaign. And But can you, like, identify the <clears throat> trigger that made you think deeper about what you were doing for an occupation? Yeah, let me go, go back on the, the ego boost. The reality is you're really out there. And... Uh, I started to develop too big a reputation, and uh, which felt very uncomfortable for me. I really wanted to just do the good work, get good people elected, and feel a sense of quiet satisfaction. That's really what I wanted to do. And when you lose, and it's very open because people debate these things. There's radio talk shows that criticize your work. There's people that call you up and tell you you don't know what you're doing. When you lose, you have to walk amongst all these people. And um, they're very joyful, some of them, that you've lost. And you just you learn a sense of a deeper sense of humility. I think what happened for me was uh, that I started to lose that sense of idealism through the political system. And a defining kind of campaign for me was Bill Bennett's race for DA in Hamden County. And there were four candidates. All of them had uh, met with me and urged me to work for them. And um, I had worked for one of the candidates before for county commission, and he was a friend of my family's, but he was the wrong choice. So I decided to go with Bennett. And uh, people really, really uh, disliked me from that camp because I did that. And it was really an issue of conscience. And um, what happened is my office got broken into. Mm. My um, personal office within my agency got totally ransacked. Um, the Bill Bennett's law office was broken into. His headquarters was broken into. Uh, I received a threatening note. It was, I said, something's wrong with the picture here. So I thought I needed to, you know, exert some uh, energy in a different way for my soul. And at, at the time, I had become aware of <clears throat> some Baha'is. And uh, actually, some years before that, and I had no spiritual connection at that point I was a kind of quote unquote fallen away Catholic and um, you know I had a jaundiced view of religion as a general premise but I um, I kept it on the radar and the idea that I was getting maybe getting out of politics and I had to actually I went to a, a conference in Sydney Australia International Association of Political Consultants and I was really seriously thinking about ending my relationship uh, in the political world and becoming a Baha'i. And uh, we were doing a little tour. We had a day off. We were on a tour bus in Sydney. And I had taken my dad with me as he was at retirement age and enjoyed this kind of stuff. And the tour bus went by the Baha'i Temple in Sydney. I said, hmm, all right, maybe that's a signal. 
So when I came back, I actually, I think I became a Baha'i not too long after that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you, before uh, you ran into the Baha'is, you had some sort of spiritual leanings in, a, in addition to your political Yeah, I mean, I, I was an altar boy uh, as a Catholic, and I loved the religious part of the Catholicism, but I had a difficulty with the institutional part of it, and I felt that they were kind of at odds. And I had an uncle, um, God rest his soul, my, my Polish side of my family, who was uh, very prejudiced. <clears throat> but he was in the front row at church, and he was aggravated with us, um, his nieces and nephews, who didn't do, participate that way. And I, I said, Uncle Kaz, how can you be so prejudiced and be in the front pew? And he'd get very upset with me, of course, for <laughs> saying that. Um, but if so, if the only way you can get the spiritual part is to accept the institutional part, you really you're conflicted. And so I just kind of kept it on the deep, deep radar, mm. figuring I don't know if I'll ever really embrace um, a religious concept. And I had kind of developed my own religious belief, which is that people are basically wanting to be united with one another, mm-hmm. that the skin color is totally irrelevant, mm-hmm. that we're, our purpose is really kind of advance ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, that was kind of it. So yeah. you always had this sense that there was a God and the, Oh, I, yeah, I had this sense thing. that he was out there and was going to direct me at some point. So I said, all right, when he's ready to do that, <laughs> whenever there's a, you know, just go with the flow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm much more aware of that now. I really kind of rudimentary sense of that way back then but i figured there there is a there's a plan Mm -hmm. let's just let it figure itself out Mm -hmm. life's a long life and you don't Mm -hmm. know what's going to happen so how did you run into the buys reality is i was starting to develop television spots for my clients and i didn't know um what i was doing and i had produced a spot that was very successful i had no clue really i had no clue what why it was successful and uh I went to the local community college, and I thought, i got to get some night courses here. Cause, um, and I went to SDCC, and they had... Uh, um, At Springfield Technical Tec- Community College. Right, and they had a communications department. So I went to the head of the department and said, can I um, you know, pick up some classes in the evening? He said, well, <laughs> we don't have any evening classes. You, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, you can come to my home. I live in Amherst, and, um, and I will tutor you. I said, that's fine. Because um, I wasn't the greatest student at UMass. I ended up paying all these people who would have been professors after for about two years, and which is a whole other part of life. I don't understand. What do you- well, like I, uh, I had a po- political polling class at UMass, which I really didn't pay attention. I was mostly reading the Globe sports page. <laughs> and you know, I got by. And then, I, of course, I'm going to become a political consultant. I don't know anything about polling. Okay. So there was a pollster in Northampton. I paid her. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm paying twice for education here. This isn't too smart. So I could have taken communications classes. I didn't. So I'm paying this guy in Amherst. You know, it's, I did this. This was like two years of my life. But mm-hmm. it, it was really the best thing. So the guy ends up being Nat Rutstein. Okay. And uh, so all these different diverse peoples coming in and out of his mm-hmm. house and just as an aside, uh, I do have an interview with uh, Nathan Rutstein on my website, www.abahaiperspective.com, if you're interested. Go ahead. And that was probably 1979, late 79, early 80. And so 
he taught me because um, he had worked at NBC. He was at his, uh, he had come to UMass, part of the uh, School of Ed. He had worked in uh, under Dwight Allen, who had quite a reputation in uh, UMass, and settled himself at STCC. And so I went to his house, learned the craft of messaging through video and television commercials through him, used that in the political work I did, which was very effective, what he taught me. And so he very gently told me, well, the Baha'is believe in this, this, and this. I said, wow, that's cool. You guys are out there because I kind of believe all that stuff too. So then I took my time, 13 years to be exact, oh, before wow. I became a Baha'i. Um, and he was very, you know, was just there if you want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of comforted that there was a group of people that I felt, okay, I can, I can do some work with these people. You know, they're out there, and they believe in this stuff, and that's good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what did you transition to if you felt that political consultation was not... Well, that was a big, you know, how am I going to live? You know, I vividly remember the cooler. It was green <laughs> with a white top um, and what was in it. And I also realized that, thank God... What, what was significant? What was in it? <laughs> well, you see, one of the things you realize is that there, there are a lot of things you can get in one helping versions. This was just starting to happen, so I would do that. Well, you'd have, you'd have milk. You've got to have milk because you have cereal. <laughs> right. Uh, you got to drink it within literally 48 hours because it's only going to stay cool for so long. You have butter. You can put butter in there. So the, the basic staples that would, you know, the, the core that's in a refrigerator it would, be, <laughs> would be in there. So, uh, you know, so having a memory of that, I said, God, this is pretty, it's a pretty big leap. You know, this is a big part of your business. And to make matters even more complicated, I was representing a casino company at the time, trying to introduce gambling to Massachusetts. And Baha'is basically don't gamble. Yeah, but you were you were saying you were pursuing things because from the altruistic point of view, you know, the right candidate, the non-corrupt candidate. How did casino? Yeah, how did casinos get into that paradigm? Well. <laughs> I didn't see anything wrong with it, actually. Okay. All right. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I thought it was okay. And I so had, you thought it was like a good thing that it Yeah, came. economic development, mm-hmm. and, you know, mm-hmm. they're doing it in one place. It's kind of a, you know, mm-hmm. uh, contradiction to have it legal in one state and not another. It just okay. seemed, mm-hmm. you know, we kind of trick mm-hmm. ourselves. It's like to tell the kids, don't do drugs while you're drinking vodka and, you know, <laughs> seltzer water. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. you have an ad, you know, this is your your brain on drugs and the next ad is for bush beer i mean you know it yeah, just right. seemed that doesn't seem like a big problem mm-hmm. but obviously you know more i delve because you have to then really explore these things i actually became a baha'i at the time i was representing the company mm-hmm. but you know god helps you out because uh one of my early mentors told me that if the client doesn't listen to the advice then you have to fire the client and so i fired the client because they really weren't listening i was trying to provide professional service they weren't listening i fired them they called me back and uh said they'd give me 750,000 bucks oh if God. i would stay on and here i am thinking about the cooler i <laughs> had a partner at the time said "Ooh, this is a big decision and i just blurted out i said you know you guys don't know who i am i have no interest in working for you uh good luck and goodbye and mm. that was it wow. so um my partner thought i should be committed to an institution <laughs> And I said, no, this is the right thing to do. And uh, it's against my emerging beliefs here. So 
I did it, and uh, basically I learned to apply what I learned in politics uh, to corporate clients, and now I'm doing an awful lot of uh, social policy work. Uh, that just seems to, again, God's opened some door. I'm working for a very large family foundation, a literacy project, uh, housing rehab, not-for-profit organization, and I have corporate clients like Peter Pan Bus Lines and mm-hmm. Reed's Landing Retirement Community, and it just all has kind of evolved because I, I guess I let it happen. Mm-hmm. And how long have you been in this new direction? Of, well, not new, but this direction of doing corporate clients and social service organizations and things like that? Well, I think... One or of, it was sort of a phased-in thing at some point. Um, it was a combination of political You know, you're constantly evolving and reinventing yourself, mm-hmm. and that's accelerating, and that mm-hmm. scares people. Um, but... If you, the thing that helps me being a Baha'i is understanding that institutions are crumbling while new ones are being are emerging, and that old ways of thinking are crumbling while new ways are emerging. And uh, quite honestly, I tried. Uh, I I still have some political friends and some, you know, I I I still give advice on a kind of free basis to folks because it you know it's generally nonpartisan, but I was asked to do a commencement speech for a political figure I'd helped get elected. And I said, well, can I do my, the speech I would do, or do you want to say something? He said, no, I don't care. You, you, <laughs> you write what you want to write. So I essentially took the Baha'i principles and condensed them into a commencement speech mm. and gave it to him. And the uh, principles are an ever-advancing civilization, the fact that these old institutions are changing and morphing into newer, more representative forms of institutions mm-hmm. and so I didn't think anything of it and he called me and said what was in that speech people were coming up to me after saying that was the greatest speech I ever heard oh my god well. <laughs> so to me that was kind of a confirmation <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, and so uh, you just have to let it happen and the world's mm-hmm. changing so fast I mm-hmm. think people are looking for people that have some belief you have to have a belief you have to have a philosophy, particularly if you're in the business I have. Mm-hmm. You can't go to a grab bag and say, this strategy on communications will work. You ha- and it's process. A lot of it's process. And there's a truth that eventually emerges from things. So, you know, I'm working for the Davis Foundation on this Cherish Every Child initiative in Springfield, which is aimed at kids from birth through the age of six. Because the research tells us that essentially your, li- your life course and your capacity is determined by six, which is an opportunity, and it's also scary at the same time. And they're targeting Springfield because it's poverty and uh, educational system that's under duress, and they're trying to get kids ready when they go to school. Uh, they've done. They've spent this money in Georgia on the early ed system, and what they found is a dramatic decrease in special ed cases over time. So it makes the case that pay me now or pay me later there's now a, a whole body of evidence. There's a Dr. Heckman uh, from the University, I think, of Chicago who's done the study on this. And there's other uh, entities coming to the fore, including um, the Federal Reserve Board. Um, and I went to a conference in New York last month where they basically said the return on investment is 15 to 17%. It takes 15 or 10 or 15 years to see that investment pay off, but the business community is in the middle of the sea change, which the rest of the world will start to hear about in the next four or five years. 
instead of paying for prisons and you know remedial programs if you invest which is is such a Baha'i principle the importance of educate compulsory education so you keep bumping into these things that say that makes so much sense mm. Mm. so it's it's been the kinds of things that I'm involved with um I'm increasingly becoming in close contact with the human spirit and with people who five or ten years ago the business community really didn't want to hear about early education. Why are you bothering me about this? You know, that's you know, that's not for us. We do other things. And now they're getting it. They're around the around the table. A PNC bank is funding a lot of this stuff, studies on this stuff. It's just the world's changing and um I think people are starting to value uh, humanity in ways that maybe they didn't in our old way of thinking over the last. So, so uh, some organization like the PNC Bank is it a is it a vested interest that brings them to the table, or is it spiritual awareness? It's a little bit of both. It, it's actually the profit motivation is number one. At this conference, it was funny because both liberals and conservatives were at it. The liberals were there for you know and would talk about the, the altruism. The conservatives were if we're going to spend money. This is the right way to spend it because everybody benefits. So my attitude is, who cares? I mean, where can you find an, uh, an issue that rallies people from both sides? You know, and increasingly we need to find those kinds of solutions. Otherwise, a solution looks like my party or your party, and then it gets uh, debunked by the other side. This is one of those that cuts across, and I think there's more of that in the future. And uh, being a part of something like that. And the ground floor is really, you know, it's really uh, inspiring. And it now allows me that to have that, um, you know, that, that peace inside of me that's uh, um, altruistic and, you know, based on some kind of idealism to, to be nurtured. Mm-hmm. Now, I really got from early on in the interview that the race relations is a very important, I don't know, subject for you or aspect of life for you. And I'm wondering, you know, you talked about your confronting it in at UMass and the, the stark difference between that and what you experienced in uh, McKnight. And I'm wondering throughout your life what you've done to sort of fulfill that mm-hmm. important issue for you. Yeah, well, one of the interesting things was uh, Nat Rutstein, who was my kind of teacher in a lot of ways. Uh, had, was in the pro- he's an author also, and he's about to produce a new book, Healing Racism in America, and his current publisher at the time didn't have room for it so we formed a publishing company called Whitcomb Publishing and we what's the name of it again? Whitcomb Publishing Whitcomb 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 yeah because I was in the Whitcomb building downtown so I thought alright I don't have to think about a name let's use that and we published Healing Racism in America and uh, he started going out and lecturing I became his agent I would travel with him sometimes when I had the chance and he was one of the proponents of this, these Institutes for the Healing of Racism, which really were just a dialogue system for people to hear each other. It had almost a spiritual feel to it because it was in a place that was safe. And, you know, we sold 16,000 books through the years, and that made me feel that, that good that that's out there, that his work was out there. Um, I also helped formulate something in 1994 in Springfield called Unity 94, which is a community-wide dialogue on race. Now, did you work with Shireen Self mm-hmm. with that? Actually, yeah. Shireen 
what we yielded out of that was uh, a proposal to have a multicultural specialist in the school department, and we essentially pushed that uh, Shireen would perform that function, and she did. We a couple years later, uh, I I was on the chamber board, and I convinced the chamber board to bring in conflict management group from Cambridge, uh, which sprung out of the Harvard Law School and Roger Fisher's work, and we did a a retreat in the Berkshires, and brought the players together. And um, it eventually ran out of steam because you need some infrastructure to keep it going. We tried to get something housed in the police department, um, and there were too many political chefs in the police department at the time. But I think we made something happen. We had people become aware. I had a client worked for a cable company. It was one of my first clients, my first non-political clients. Great guy. He worked in the Peace Corps in his college years. I really never thought about race after that. And he came up to me after one of these conferences and said, you know, I'm really appreciative that you were involved in this. I learned things I never thought I would learn in this. So he said, I don't know if it's how it's going to work in my life or my business, but there's something in there now that I see differently. And so those were things that uh, I spent a lot of time uh, being involved in that helped me feel that I was trying to contribute something. And how about today? Today I realize you can't, people have to, you can't impose these things. You have to let it happen. And so I take more of a one-on-one approach on these issues um, with people and try to get them to see things uh, differently. Mm. You know, if I coach basketball um, and my team's all white, if we're playing an all-black team, I try to have a conversation without getting heavy with kids, just about the significance of that. There's a, there's a movie out, Glory Road, a um, great sports movie about the Texas and A&M basketball team was the first major Division One team to integrate. Um, so I took my son to it, and we had a conversation, 11, had a conversation after you know, imagine being a good basketball player and not being able to play. I mean, and he's like, "Well, that's stupid. Why would? It's terrible. Why would somebody do that?" Well, I can't really answer the question. I don't know why someone would do that. It's what we call prejudice, and I don't know how it works, but it just—it's very powerful. Mm-hmm. So I think I take it more into uh, day in and day out. You know three yards in a cl- cloud of dust kind of rather than the big you know production i think mm-hmm. that's just where i am right now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now i normally ask this question but i kind of think that it might be a little bit more difficult for you imagine what your life would have been like if you had not become a baha'i well i think i would feel less of a sense of uh of of idealism, I think I would feel more um, less optimistic, and I think when you realize that you know, the Baha'i faith really kind of promotes this notion that the process has to unfold, things have to kind of get worse before they get better. You know, whenever you, if you, you know, when in new institutions are born, there's a struggle. It's like a birthing process. So I think I'd be a little more jaded, and um, you know, it doesn't mean that doesn't creep into my level of consciousness because that's I'm a human being, and that's going to happen. 
but you really see the dots start to get connected. You know, one of the things that's out there in the world now is the clash between Islam and Christianity. And so I say, just from, a, from my kind of political sense, how is there going to be a middle ground between these two huge titanic forces? And honestly, I don't see one. I see the Baha'i faith as an accommodation because it's inclusive of Islam and Christianity, which most people don't know. And I, you know, I was just giving a talk on this the other night. And you know, if you read the Quran, it, it essentially accepts all of Christianity and Jesus. The only woman uh, discussed in the Quran is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> so I think if you're going to create just a logical accommodation, there has to be a third way. And to me, the way my mind works and the way I approach problems, the third way is always the best way. And in a sense, the Baha'i faith is a compromise for all future, former religious history. Uh, it's going to take maybe 500 to 1,000 years for people to accept something like that. But you can see that there's no accommodation between these two forces that are dr drilling right into each other. You know, the cartoons that were done about uh, Muhammad, um, if there was such a depiction of Jesus Christ run in Western papers, you can bet the religious right would be all over that and be very upset and would have a right to be upset about something like that. So we have zero understanding and not much more tolerance for the, you know, between these two large forces. And people are scared. So they're hunkering down in their own fort, their own religion to some extent, and they're unyielding to the other side. And that will, that's a recipe for the destruction of humanity. Mm -hmm. We don't change it. Yeah. Well, thank you, Paul, very much. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Paul Robbins, a Baha'i from Wilbraham, Massachusetts, who was formerly a political consultant and is now a public relations consultant for both corporate and nonprofit organizations. If you want information on the Baha'i faith specifically, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B A H A I.org. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
playing with rusted cars. Swords cover their hands. Politicians laugh and drink, drunk to all demands. Buying dog food now. Starvation roams the street. Babies die before they're born. Infected by the greed. Now some folks say that we should be glad for what we have. Tell me, would you be happy? Will it get to
for criticism Help bondage my horizons When will there be a time to love? We make time to debate religion for Passing bills and building prisons for Building fortunes and passing judgments When will there be a time to
I had stopped to listen once or twice If I had closed my mouth and opened my eyes If I had cooled my head and warmed my heart I'd not be on Oh, to 
Gillette, host of A Baha'i Perspective on Saturday mornings here on WXOJLP. As you know, nothing is really for free. Although Valley Free Radio has the word free in it, we still have to pay the electric bill and the rent and any repairs or replacement parts to our very used equipment. So we hate to hear the sound of... That's right, dead air. So please join us in supporting local radio programs that you won't even hear at your local public radio station. You can send donations to the Media Education Foundation, Valley Free Radio's sponsor, at 60 Masonic Street, Northampton, 01060, and help us to stay on the air. Thanks. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station.